0: I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code bookclub10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and
1: Adrian Frost. This month we're reading Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant.
0: Let's get into it. Hi Adrian. Hi Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. Today we're discussing Uniquely Human chapters five and six. For that, we're gonna do this or that. So I am going to start, Adrian, this or that trivia night or board game night.
1: Okay. This is hard. Um, I think trivia night. I love trivia. I play like a couple times a month. What? Yeah,
0: I'm on it. A- Wait, this is new information. I'm on a trivia team. <laughs> like a pub trivia yeah. night? You're on a yeah, team? Go- yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you didn't know. What is this secret life? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Um. We are called the four blonde mice. It's like we were supposed to be the four blind mice, but then the person misunderstood us. And then it was like this joke about like four non blondes. I don't know. <laughs> four blonde mice. Yeah, we play every other week. We try to go. And it's like this really fun trivia at this bar. And the host is like this fabulous man. Named Dennis, and every week he wears a different pair of like high heels. I think he's a drag performer. (laughs) Dennis. And it's great. We've won once. Ooh. um, What's the prize? A bottle of alcohol. And the time that we won, it was a bottle of brandy. (laughs) What
0: fun. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) I don't even know how to drink that. (laughs) So we
1: all like took a sip in the parking lot. It was like horrific. Don't just sip brandy from the bottle. No. just fyi um some okay so i do have to tell you there is a funny story about this so the team Ooh. that always wins it's like our nemesis team
0: do they know that they're your nemesis or is it like a one-sided thing? it's
1: like one-sided but they should know okay they should know in their hearts okay. because <laughs> they win like every time and it's just two guys oh. i don't know how they win they win every single time and so once Cheating. my sister was like I'm going to find out what's up with them. And so she went over and was like, so what's up with you guys? <laughs> and the guy was like, oh, um, you know, my dad is like a four-time Jeopardy winner. And I was like, ew, so you have like a leg yeah. up? Get out of here. This is just for like Joe Schmoes, you know?
0: Yeah, you know, I've told you I started preparing to go on Jeopardy last year. And <laughs> it is not even about being smart. It's about rote memorization of facts. Yeah. I mean, there are books you can buy to study for Jeopardy and like you start with all the acronyms. I don't know. It's just so crazy the way they memorize these facts. And you think like, wow, people who go on Jeopardy must be like people who read a lot of books. No, it's not that.
1: Or just like (laughs) savant level geniuses. Like they just have amazing memories. (laughs) Yeah. No. Okay. Well, I will give you a trivia question because this one was hard and I want to see if you can (sighs) get it. There's no way. Okay. Name the two heaviest organs in the human body. Uh,
0: (laughs) organs 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 i'm gonna say the brain and the bladder (laughs) (laughs) okay love the way you're thinking love that (laughs) and the bladder is conditional like if you took my bladder at any time it's very light (laughs) like it cannot hold anything but if you took my fiance's it's probably like 10 pounds Okay.
1: (laughs) okay well I don't even know what I would have said because, you know, it's a team. Everyone's like, oh, it's this, it's this. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I thought the brain. I think we said the liver and the brain. Okay. The liver is correct.
0: Okay. I was thinking about
1: that. And the second one is the
0: skin. I was... That was the first thing I feel like the a first question. thing that came to my mind was I bet the skin is counted as an organ because they always say something about that. Like
1: Your skin is your biggest organ.
0: Yeah. Sunscreen. Okay, well so I would also go trivia for this. Love a trivia game too, just played at home, like a trivial pursuit. Oh you know? Sure. But don't go I'm not on a team. Don't go regularly. I did in college. I was on a team with people I worked with. Yeah. More recently, like in the last 10 years. My fiance and I at our old, old apartment went to the bar around the corner that we always went to. And in their like event, they have this big like event room where people could rent it out. We stumbled into a Seinfeld trivia. That was fun. so fun. We joined up with this other like straggler, like this random guy <laughs> that we didn't know. And we were terrible, even though we have both seen every Seinfeld episode countless times. But the questions were just so specific. And like, you had to be the biggest Seinfeld nerd. But it was really, really fun. We did win something. We won like a voucher. I don't know. I wished that that could just happen all the time, that you stumble into a fun... <laughs>
1: trivia you know it happens where i go like sometimes people come in the door and their faces are just like whoa like i'm just here to get dinner <laughs> yeah, you're like, like what did i just want to play trivia <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. okay i have a good one for you go for it oceanfront mansion mm. or mountain chalet the original question was mansion or cabin and i knew you would say mansion and so i was like no no You know, we're not talking some like crappy cabin. I'm talking about a beautiful mountain chalet. Maybe there's a sauna. It's got a jacuzzi for sure. Maybe it's right on the slope. Maybe it's ski in, ski out. Okay. 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 And then also we're talking about a beautiful waterfront mansion.
0: Okay. I, contrary to what you might think, do not ever want a mansion of any kind. I am child free by choice. I do not need a lot of space. My house right now is the exact size I would want, except instead of having my gym in my garage, I would like to use my garage for cars and have a gym in the house that is also air conditioned or heated. Right. so (laughs) One more bedroom. One more bedroom, but bigger than a bedroom, like really the size for a nice gym, you know, that's what I want. Oh, yeah. I also would want a fun room like where there's a pool table and like a really comfy couch, like a gate like a, like a man cave type of a basement. I want a basement, (laughs) a finished basement.
1: I'm like, like a mansion, (laughs) like a mansion. (laughs) Like we're adding rooms very rapidly.
0: you (laughs) You know, when you look on Zillow at like, some city in the Midwest to see what you could buy there for the same price as your neighborhood in LA and then you see that every house has that finished basement that's like so fun with like lots of football jerseys hanging on the walls framed you know oh yeah
1: maybe a bar a nice bar down
0: (laughs) there it's fun (laughs) (laughs) okay but my answer is going to be the beachfront mansion, but it doesn't have to be, you know, like a really nice house right on the beach. Could be a bungalow. Um, it could be anything. It could be a nice bungalow. It could be very small. It could be yes, like Garcelle on Beverly Hills just bought a very small beach house that she's redoing. She's renovating it. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I, you know, I've told you before. I lived in Hermosa Beach, one block up from the beach, a very desirable beach. The Strand in Hermosa and Manhattan Beach is just gorgeous the houses sit right on the sand with lots of strangers passing by constantly all day every day sure but I would just love to be able to step out of my house and the sand be inches away
1: I'm not going to go in the yeah. ocean why would you go in the ocean <laughs> <laughs> um, okay and I do have to apologize Laura for making an assumption
0: an assumption about me wanting <laughs> about you wanting a mansion <laughs> <I'm> so sorry <laughs> Listen, I want three bedrooms. I want a bedroom for me, a bedroom for my fiance, our own separate space, our own wings. I mean, okay, I want a mansion. (laughs) Okay, what would you choose? Okay, I have a little bit of like a tsunami
1: fear. Oh, I don't know about us here in California. I I mean, we get earthquakes, I guess it could happen. Sometimes I have really horrible nightmares about tsunamis. Mm So, um, I don't know. The beach thing, like, I like it, but it's a little scary. I don't know. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm, like, not that much of a mountain girl either. The snow is cool. I guess I would go mountain. It's fun. It's kind of has, like, a novelty factor.
0: Anyone listening to this podcast knows that you would go for the third option, desert house. (laughs) Of course.
1: Mid-century modern desert house in Palm Springs or Joshua Tree, maybe, but really Palm (laughs) Springs, So
0: all right that's gonna wrap it up for this or that stick around after a really quick break we will be back to discuss uniquely human
1: have you checked out laura's speech materials yet on teachers pay teachers or boom learning under laura gslp i am such a huge fan and i'm here to sing her praises (laughs) since i'm a teletherapist i use boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. (laughs) The best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at
0: SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP book club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more
1: about the SLP book club, go to the SLP you can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP
0: Book Club. All right, so we are going to start off with chapter five, which is emotional memory. And since we are covering two pretty long chapters today, I'm going to probably skip over a lot of the stories. I'll tell maybe my favorites. But if I didn't really, sometimes I didn't think they were necessary to get the gist of what he was trying to say. So he starts off his chapter on emotional memory with the story of going to a school years after he'd worked there. And there's a teenage boy who's clearly really excited to see him. And The teacher's like, did you work with this kid, Bernie? And he's like, oh, I did work with a kid. Back when he was seven or whatever. So Bernie comes over and he's like, it's Barry. Let's sit down and tie our shoes really excitedly. And so he remembers, yeah, when I worked here so many years ago, I did for weeks help this kid tie his shoes. And then he tells the story of a little boy named Julio, whose parents were really concerned because every time they would stop at a certain intersection, he would scream and pound his fists against his head. And the parents were so concerned contacted Dr. Barry, who first was like, can you avoid the intersection? And they were like, no, we can't. So then he encourages them to be detectives and try to figure out what the cause is. And they realized that when Julio was much younger, he'd had a dangerously high fever, became severely dehydrated, and they had to take him to a clinic where he had to be held down to get an IV. And it was just a terrible experience for him. And on that corner where he was now reacting, there was a building that looked really similar to the clinic. So they put it together and assumed that that's the memory he was having. And Dr. Berry says emotional memory is very powerful. Sometimes we might not remember facts like people's names, but we will remember whether we liked or disliked the person, or we might hear a song or smell something and have a really strong feeling associated with it. And this is magnified in children with autism. So they often have very strong memories. They can remember things like geography or events from their own lives in incredible detail. And then because of their neurological or sensory differences, they're also prone to experiencing more stressful events. So Dr. Berry describes this as kind of the perfect storm and says emotional memory challenges are often overlooked in the treatment of autism. You've got this like incredibly strong memory and then Being more prone to like stress and anxiety associated with those memories. So it's just, you know, amplified. For children with autism, an emotional memory can make them feel as though the memory is happening right then and there. And there's no way to turn it off. So he's kind of describing that teenager who wanted to tie his shoes. It's not like he was remembering it. It's like he was right back in that moment you know, he really wanted Dr. Barry to like get get down and tie his shoes. So So he tells a story of a boy who heard from his mom that his new aide was going to be a woman named Jennifer. And he was immediately just like, no, Jennifer, no, Jennifer. And it turned out that he had had a babysitter who had been physically abusive to him and been fired, who was named Jennifer. So just that memory with the name, got him very emotional.
1: I felt bad for the new Jennifer. Honestly, that (laughs) story. I was like, how sad for the new Jennifer? She didn't do that.
0: And you know, I had that realization too, which is for some reason, I mean, I can't even believe I never thought of this. But later in the chapter, he says, therapists at a new school, you might have kids who are reacting to the room where they've been taken before. Your room might be somewhere they've been before with an old therapist that they didn't like yes. or they've had that experience with and it has nothing to do with you. It's, you know, there's just there's things that you can't even figure out. Yeah, He says kids mm. sometimes get anxious just because he's called Dr. Barry because of their own memories of people named doctor. Mm-hmm. There was a boy who yelled no needles, no Dr. Barry. And then he said, I don't want a shot. And then the dad told him Dr. Barry isn't a needle doctor. He's a play doctor, much like our own Adrian." Dr. Toys. Ever heard
1: of me? <laughs>
0: <laughs> World For anyone renowned, who didn't listen, Dr. Toys. <laughs> <over the summer. laughs> Adrian had a client in a private clinic who would call her Dr. Josh. He was a real cutie.
1: (laughs) Oh, I do have to say something about this, though, which is, yeah, this literally happened just a couple days ago with my own daughter. We were driving and I pointed out like, oh, look, there's your doctor, like where her doctor is. And, you know, she's five. And she was like, I don't like the doctor, mom. And I was like, why not? She's like, I don't like shots. And I was like, oh, I know they're no fun yeah. you know whatever and she's like then she was kind of like stuck on it but she was like I don't want another shot I don't want another shot and I said it's okay it's a long time till you're gonna have to have another shot and she's like I don't want one at all not even when I'm 12 and it took a lot to get her off of that but those emotions she wanted to talk about if I remembered the first time she ever got a shot I was really thinking about it so even for neurotypical kids we see this yeah. and you know um, I can only imagine how stressful that is if you can't really regulate yourself as well you know
0: yeah so he did eventually get this kid to play with him once his dad told him he's a play doctor not a needle doctor but dr barry points out what if that child had been less verbal or was using words that only had meaning to him and not to his dad or dr barry it would have been much more difficult to understand this reaction so dr Barry's just coming over with all his toys to play and this kid is having this reaction It's not so easy to figure it out sometimes. And then he describes an SLP who took a child to a room one day when he was in stocking feet. And the door handle shocked him. And another child oh. might just be able to say to himself, just because it happened once, that doesn't mean it'll happen again. And even if it does, it's not that bad. But for that child, the emotional memory of the shock was too strong. So he would be like against the wall on the far side, terrified of that door because mm-hmm. he was so scared that it would happen again to him, which I've talked about before. I have that issue with my car and the gas station. <laughs> I was going to say, I always think I'm going to get have we shocked. talked about this before? <laughs> yes we have i because hate I'm that terrified feeling. of getting shocked i, I know. when you are reaching your little finger out and you just are like I is know. it is it gonna happen we're such <laughs> babies i feel like a baby about it <laughs> i know all right you never know what will be a trigger so he tells a story of a boy he was watching run laps and he kept saying good job and the child had had an aba therapist who used like really traditional drills and lots of reinforcement like good job good job and the kid just did not like it so he kept telling Dr. Barry no good job don't say good job and even when he tried to do a thumbs up he was like that still means good job or a little girl who started a new school year and every day at eleven thirty she would cry and they could not figure it out they were trying to help her and then eventually talked to her teacher from the year before and it turned out that she got a break every day at 1130 to go out on the playground and swing and the girl didn't have the communication skills to tell them that that's what she wanted so Mm. it really took going that extra step going to the old teacher to find out and she had that memory tied to a time of day he says there are differences in the way children with autism experience emotional memory and people who have PTSD even though like a lot of parents or caregivers kind of want to compare them With PTSD, the brain processes emotional memories in the amygdala. There are triggers that remind people of a stressful event that will cause stress hormones to be released. And the amygdala then becomes overactivated and releases more hormones. And this causes severe emotional distress with racing thoughts, anger, hypervigilance. So it's not as if the person is just remembering the event. It is as if they're reliving it. And emotional memories are rarely as intrusive or debilitating in children with autism as PTSD can be, but they do cause dramatic changes in behavior that are really difficult to understand for caregivers. So PTSD can teach us about how to support these children. Once a traumatic event is experienced, it can't be erased. It lingers in the brain and can be triggered by a word, smell, or image. But we can override those bad experiences by building up a lot of positive experiences, which makes me think of our chapter on trauma And toxic stress from beyond behaviors, you know, when we talk about those adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, the only way to really support a child is to build relationships and build up tons of positive experiences. He gives an example, a child who had bad associations with the bathroom because of gastrointestinal issues she had had, and her parents started doing a lot of fun stuff, a lot of singing her favorite songs, reading books, bringing in toys in the bathroom to just build up positive memories in the bathroom and kind of crowd out the negative memories she'd had. There are three significant clues that will help you determine if a child's behavior is related to emotional memory. First, a strong reaction that doesn't seem related to something you can observe. Second, consistently expressing fear or anxiety in relation to a particular person, place, or activity. And third, engaging in echolalia or repeating words or phrases that are linked to the person, place, or activity. And then how we can help is to acknowledge and validate the child's experience and provide supports for emotional regulation. A lot of people will just ignore it or say, don't worry about that, but that's not respectful of the child. It doesn't take him seriously and it doesn't teach him strategies to stay emotionally regulated. He'll feel dismissed and possibly more anxious. Once you understand the emotional memory, avoid the triggers. Steer clear of people or situations that trigger the memory. And I feel like that's not some people's instinct. They're not accepting of like, well, if, if the auditorium is just too overwhelming for him, Let's not make him go to the auditorium. They're like, well, he has to go to the auditorium. You know, Yeah. don't people kind of have the opposite, like a pushback on that? We can get him to do it. Yeah. Anyway, if the trigger is unavoidable, be respectful and don't force things. Give the child control and choices. He gave an example of a family who had three neurotypical kids and one girl with autism and the other three loved amusement parks. But the child with autism, Amy, didn't. So they showed her pictures of the food court and carousel, which she liked. They brought noise-canceling headphones, her favorite snacks. And then if she became overwhelmed, they asked her what she wanted. If she wanted to leave, they just honored that and they left. And once she understood that she wasn't ever being forced to go and had control, she relaxed and went more willingly. So forcing children to do something only creates new fears and anxieties. And then he talks about creating positive emotional memories. He goes into a lot of detail about dentists' offices, yeah. which if you work with kids with autism, probably a lot of kids. But my, a lot of the kids I worked with who had autism, their parents would talk to me a lot about the dentist. Or they'd say... He's having yeah. a really hard day because he went to the dentist yesterday. You know, it was like it right, was a, right. a trauma that lasted for like weeks afterwards sometimes. So yeah. he talks about one mom who brought in and donated this rocking chair for the waiting room that he could rock in. She would bring music and headphones, his favorite toy. And then she also coached the dentist on how to talk to her child and let him know what was coming next. Another mom who was a dental hygienist teamed up with another hygienist and a dentist to open an office that catered to children with a lot of fear and sensitivity. I love that. I know. They posted pictures of the people who worked there and procedures that they might perform so they would know what to expect and could go over it before they went in. They opened the office one day per week and put out toys and activities so that the kids could just come by to play and associate the office with positive memories. Have you seen like the viral videos of that barber who opened in New Jersey who has the barbershop for kids with autism uh,
1: maybe it sounds familiar
0: his name is oh it's called your kind of cuts on tiktok there's all these videos and i'm sure some people have a problem with the fact that he uses puzzle pieces in his logo but it's just amazing when you watch the videos of how they get kids that are clearly because getting your haircut is another big one The kids are so scared of the Clippers, but the way they kind of give the kid control, let the kid, like, put their hand on it. It's just so sweet to watch, you see, from the time they get in and they're so scared to when they leave and they're so happy and excited and proud of themselves for what they did. So That's sweet. And then he says... Our most hopeful strategy for kids who have problems with emotional memory is to create a life full of positive memories. So offer choices instead of exerting control, foster their interests, honor their strengths, and make learning, work, and life more joyful and fun so that they'll have fewer negative emotional memories and can experience the joys and pleasures life offers. I probably skipped some stuff but just read the chapter. So we'll move on to chapter 6, social understanding, and I feel like Adrian, I'm going to need your help because you're the expert, you're trained in peers, and I feel like this is yeah. your area. <laughs> okay i'm here (laughs) this should have been your chapter but anyway Uh he starts with the story of a fifth grade boy who was learning about the human body in school and then he's waiting in line for a movie and starts just like going down the line pointing out things about people's bodies like oh he's he's obese she's really skinny like just like pointing straight to them and the parents are just mortified. Yeah. And then another example of a teenager who had a lot of difficulty in conversations, often just talked about his own interests without asking any questions of others. And when Dr. Berry tried to help him with strategies, he mm-hmm. was like, oh, other people can do that, but not me. And Dr. Berry was like, what are you talking about? He was like, Other people can read each other's minds. So Mm -hmm. these two stories are vastly different. One child who's completely unaware of social convention and doesn't pay attention to how others react to what he says at all. And then the other who is highly aware. And since he can't understand it, his own self-esteem suffers because he assumes that everyone else just has this power that he simply doesn't have. Dr. Berry describes that we learn language implicitly, just through listening and observing, and the same goes for social rules. We induce the subtle, invisible conventions of social interaction. And he compares this to learning a second language as an adult for people with autism. They can learn, but it is challenging and it requires a lot of conscious effort. He uses the analogy of a cafeteria quite a bit (laughs) and he says when you walk into one for the first time you don't know the rules but you just learn by watching people and a person with autism might just walk in and go straight to the food they want even cutting the line and the social world can feel like an unfamiliar cafeteria to a person with autism where everyone else seems to know what the rules are but for them, it's really confusing or impossible to learn. Mm. And then he describes essentially a soup plantation. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, <laughs> oh, you're making me miss soup plantation. <laughs> there's, I feel like Orange County is like a hub. There's, like, There used to be so many, weren't there? So where you walk in and you go, you start like right at the salad bar. You load up on your salad. Then you pay. Then you get access to the like soups and pizza and ice cream. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he's like, it's so confusing. I'm like, what? I grew up on <laughs> Me too. I'm like, it's really a no-brainer. <laughs> what are you talking about? We're taught this from birth. It's true. Um- I'm
1: carrying the tray when you were little and you had salad on your tray and you had to walk to your seat. I've dropped it. Oh, I dropped God. it before. Horrifying. I think I
0: have too. <laughs> he loved this place because they had put up visuals everywhere showing you what to do as if everyone who walked in had autism and they were accommodating them. Yeah. But the real world navigating social situations is not going to be so accommodating. Neurological wiring makes it difficult for people with autism to read subliminal factors that help us read social situations he describes a little boy who was giggling at a Sunday barbecue that his parents would invite like all his therapists and team to. Mm. And Mm -hmm. they were trying to get him to stop laughing. And then finally he was like, Susie has a high squeaky voice. It makes my body feel funny, which totally embarrassed this therapist Susie. He just didn't. Yeah. He says what he's feeling. Everyone's like, why are you laughing? And it's like, that's why it makes his body. It's probably ticklish. Voices can be ticklish. (laughs) And then a boy who would roughhouse with his older brothers at home. But at preschool, the other kids didn't like the way he played. And he just couldn't understand that he wasn't getting the cues from them. And he wasn't understanding that there were different rules at home Mm. and at school. So, you know, it's just it can be challenging. So to teach social rules, he said children with autism often excel at following explicit rules and even become the rule keepers pointing out when other kids aren't following them. But unspoken, subtle rules are more challenging. He describes Ned, who would shout out answers to geography questions in class, but wouldn't give other kids the chance to respond. So his SLP was helping him understand the rule. If I raise my hand, the teacher will call on me. But then he starts raising his hand, and sometimes it seemed like the teacher was just ignoring Mm -hmm. him. Like she wouldn't call on him, and then his mood would shift. So then his SLP had to teach him the exception. If I raise my hand, sometimes the teacher will call on me, but sometimes she will call on my friends. And then Dr. Barry was observing him in class, and he raised his hand, and then he turned and yelled, Dr. Barry, just because I'm raising my hand, it doesn't mean the teacher will call (laughs) on me. So he said there are limitations, and we teach one rule, and then the child encounters its exceptions. And then we teach the exceptions, and then they don't realize that we don't talk about the rules. We just follow them. So it's all complicated. He has a little section on how kids with autism interpret language very literally and have difficulty with metaphors and sarcasm and that those things have to be taught really explicitly. He says it's really important to be direct. Use comprehension checks. Ask if the person understands rather than assuming he does. Teach concepts that are not literal explicitly to kids and be clear about specific words we use. Like he gives an example of a mom telling a child to dial 911 if there's an emergency, which is if something bad happens to you or someone else. And then she, I think, like wouldn't give him dessert one night and he called 911 it's on an her. emergency. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And so you have to be even more specific that it's not just something bad. It's like a fire, a car accident, a bad right. injury. And then he talks about the concept of honesty, which is hard, I think when we tell kids to be honest, and then we kind of socially expect them to not always be honest. So there was a child who was performing piano at a nursing home, and he started off his performance by saying, I'm very sorry that some of you are going to die soon, because his parents had explained to him that it would be like older people, some would be sick. And, you know, people with autism show us how truly deceptive and dishonest the social world requires us Mm. to be. And then he talks about misunderstandings. He says it can be really hard on people with autism that they misread social situations. And then even after it's explained to them, they still don't understand. Their self-esteem can suffer and they can experience a lot of unhappiness and anxiety around social situations. They can live in a state of constant confusion when it comes to social situations which can lead to really unexpected behavior. So he told a story about Benny. Story was kind of confusing to me, but basically he was a middle schooler. School was just hard for him in general. The work was hard and then the social situations he was put in were hard. And so at a certain time of day, he'd become really irritable. And then right at that time, a fire alarm started and there were kids roughhousing and he was like standing right there and the principal came and like told them all to get in line. And he reacted by just shoving her to the mm. ground and he got suspended. And then Dr. Barry comes in and talks to her and, and she's like, I want to understand, but I can't have a kid, you know, shoving me sure. to the ground. So he just says it's impossible to anticipate every situation that might cause a child so much anxiety that it leads to an unexpected reaction like that. And for him, they added in an extra break for him around the time of day when he was becoming really irritable. But he can't be prepared for everything. No. Teachers are often confused because they don't understand the child with autism. They think he's willfully defiant or non-compliant. He talks about a child who refused to draw a picture that combined his two favorite animals because it defied logic and didn't make sense. And he didn't care that it was the assignment he was expected to do. Teachers expect students to have a social obligation to please them and are confused when a child doesn't understand or adhere to that social obligation. He talks about understanding emotions. People with autism experience the entire range of emotions, just like everyone else, but they may have difficulty understanding and expressing their own emotions and reading the emotions of others. He tells kind of a funny story about Oprah Winfrey asking Temple Grandin, what her feelings are like weird question i thought i was like oprah what are you talking about what her I feelings like, are you're like yours <laughs> <laughs> i was like if you're
1: supposed to be like an expert interviewer why would you ask that question this is your literal job and you're like what are your feelings like <laughs>
0: but Temple is thinking feelings like the sense of touch. She starts talking about how wool sweaters are like scratchy or I I don't know. I didn't write down specifically, but you know, there's this misunderstanding.
1: Yeah. That's what she said. And then Dr. Barry was like, did she say that because she misinterpreted the question or perhaps she just didn't want to answer, mm-hmm. which is fine either way, right?
0: I hope it was the second one. She's like, that's a dumb question, Oprah. I thought you were <laughs> Oprah,
1: ma'am. <laughs> yeah, is this, gonna... Are you supposed to be professional?
0: Yeah. Sorry, Oprah. Sorry, Oprah. Sometimes they can identify an emotion in others, like if they're shown a... Picture of a baby crying, they can say that baby's sad, but they won't be able to tell you what makes them feel the same way. So they don't have that self reflection. He gives us an example of a boy, Eric, mm-hmm. this teacher. His teacher was using an emotion wheel to teach the kids about emotions. So he spins the wheel and it lands on jealous. And then they're supposed to, I guess, like, this is a frustrating <laughs> because story. They're supposed to role play. And so she goes, How are you feeling, Eric? Mm. And he's supposed to say jealous. But, like, he's not feeling jealous. So, how is he supposed to answer that? I don't know.
1: It was frustrating to read the back and forth. I was like, mm.
0: yes. Like, w- why would read you keep this- at it?
1: It's obviously not. <laughs> Let's just. <laughs>
0: The kid did not understand the concept of jealous. She's trying to explain it. She's trying to tell him like, oh, what if your friend had a watch that you wanted? And, you know, you really wanted it and you'd feel jealous. And he's trying to get on the same page with her. Like he's answering and he just keeps not understanding what the word means. And it's like, lady, not the way to teach (laughs) emotion. This kid is not getting it. What immediately came to my mind was Lisa Murphy, who wrote our summer book, Play, when she described learning through play and real life situations. Like when she described how you teach about gravity, where like, you know, the blocks fall off the table and you say you talk about gravity or you're, you're playing with some kind of slime and you talk about gravity, you know, like where you're using real context. It's like if. You could just do that when someone has a new toy or something and you say, oh, it sounds like you maybe are feeling a little jealous. Like I feel jealous sometimes too. Or, you know, like you teach it in the real when it's happening to the kid. That's how you teach it.
1: Yeah. Hypothetical is really like hard. And then maybe they've never felt jealous about a watch. And like we're talking about how these kids feel so – they're so literal. So it's like really hard. Like maybe they don't care about the watch, you know? Yeah, because
0: at one point he does say like – I have a watch at home. Like, <laughs> right. so it didn't, he's like, why would I want to watch? Why would I right. feel this feeling? Does jealous mean that you have the same thing as the other person? It's like, he's not going to get it that way, lady. Sorry, I keep calling her lady. Lady. (laughs) So he says, how not to teach emotions. We think we're teaching children with autism how to express their emotions, but really we're just teaching them how to label pictures of people expressing emotions. And we're using language to describe emotions, which are so abstract. So this is very challenging. It's not just like labeling an object like an apple. Emotions involve cognitive and physiological reactions. We feel, we reflect, and then we experience them in our body. So now he says exactly what I said. It's more effective to teach a feeling at the exact moment the child is experiencing that feeling. This way, the child learns to express and communicate a cognitive emotional experience, not just a facial expression. And then he talks about teaching social. So we teach social skills instead of teaching social understanding and social thinking, which I think this is shifting, but when you're just teaching social skills, your goal is to make the child appear normal, but it doesn't help that child to make good decisions when they're interacting or to read social situations well, and he gives the eye contact example. So, a big proponent of eye contact training was Lovas, who thought it was a prerequisite for learning all other skills, which he says he later retracted. But a lot of people are still working on eye contact. But looking at others in the eye can be really difficult for people with autism. It might be uncomfortable. It might take so much effort that it's hard for them to concentrate on what they're saying. It could cause anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's just a social practice that's part of our culture and not Mm -hmm. necessarily an inherent human behavior. Right. So if we take a social understanding approach where you teach the child other ways to acknowledge that they are listening, like looking at the other person sometimes, saying, "Uh uh-huh, or explaining to the person, please understand that I'm paying attention even when I'm not looking at you. Right. That's more helpful than just forcing someone to make eye contact when it makes them uncomfortable. Right. And then we have a section on unspoken assumptions. Sometimes people with autism don't perceive the need to communicate what's bothering them. This is my favorite story. Enrique would leave pictures of his principal on her desk with little devil horns and a tail that would say, the evil principal. (laughs) every time this kid would find something he didn't like at the school like the ketchup in the cafeteria he would immediately blame the principal and then draw her as the devil oh my god and this principal did welcome this form of expression and eventually found a way for him to express his grievances more conventionally but you know it's like that idea that he has this idea in his head, like she runs the school. She's
1: responsible.
0: Everything that's bad is her fault, you know? Yeah. And then he ends the whole chapter with a story of a boy named Bud, who's 13, who seemed really depressed at school, would just close his eyes and put his head down in class. And the teachers called in Barry to consult. And he asked him, he asked Bud what's going on and Bud told him he thought his teachers hated him and were intentionally giving him mm-hmm. assignments on topics he didn't like and Barry asked if his right. teachers had ever asked about what he liked and he was like why would they do that they hate me and I mm-hmm. just was thinking imagine looking around your middle school class and you see all these other kids participating because of that drive to do well and please their teachers that we talked about a second ago and then bud's just assuming well look at the way they they must love this the teacher's picking subjects that they actually like and like she just hates me yeah and barry explained to him that dr barry himself had to take classes he didn't like when he was young and that bud's classmates probably didn't like all their work either they just had to do it And then he suggested that Bud attend a social skills group so he could learn why people behave the way they do and say what they say. And he says that no one perceived how Bud was misunderstanding the situation. So no one knew that they just had to explain this to him really concretely. And they worked to build some of his interests into the curriculum. And I think that this is hard for kids now, even more than ever, with social media I feel like our world yeah you look around and you see the way people are acting you see what people post on social media you're not seeing what's going on below the surface and if you just you just feel like you're so different right from other people you think they're happy all the time you think they like what they're doing you know yeah but I feel like for kids with autism that would just be so amplified if you were looking around like why do all these kids just have these skills I don't have read minds that i can't read and like what we're learning about it's just so that's where it made me think of you because i feel like these were like the kids you worked with a lot
1: yeah um and peers i like it a lot because so first of all uh michelle garcia winner he does reference her and i do really recommend her book why teach social thinking it's really great I like a lot of the strategies like I like super flex I like how she kind of makes it relevant to the kids so that it can be a little more meaningful but peers I like it's a didactic training technique so there's you know it's a 16 week program and every week you have a different like theme so sometimes it's like starting conversations correctly or ending conversations correctly or picking appropriate topics and you watch videos where first you can see it being kind of performed incorrectly and then you kind of see it done the right way appropriately or whatever and it provides a really good contrast and then you practice in the session and then go home and have like a they call it get togethers basically hang out with a friend and kind of like practice a little bit more but you know with all things i think motivation is really key and i think when he talks about being a detective, for me, that's kind of where that comes into play. It's like, we can't force kids to make friends. We can't force kids to want to learn about other mm-hmm. people. You have to find where's their buy-in. What will help them to want to use these skills? And I agree with what they said about just, like, observing facial expressions. That's not really what people look like. Like, a lot of the pictures are so, like, over the top. Like, disgust is, like, Ugh. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> sometimes it's so subtle. And so I don't know. I mean, I love the program, but a major key component of it is that the kids and the participants need to want to become better at making friends and need to really want and have that motivation internally. Mm -hmm. And so I do agree with him that it's one of the hardest things to teach. And I hear a lot of complaints from parents and from teachers like, well, speech therapy is not even helpful because, you know, you talk about it in the speech room and then they're not using it. Mm-hmm. like on the playground, or they're not using these techniques in the classroom. And I'm like, well, how do we make the jump? That's the big question. Yeah. How do you make them want to use, you know? So I like teaching more subtle. And you can tell the kids who practice, the ones that go like, uh-huh,
0: when you're talking, you know? Uh-huh. Or nodding along. So, yeah,
1: I, I liked all of his suggestions. I thought they were right on the money.
0: Yeah. When you talked about motivation, it's reminded me of the Loving Push, because I feel like there was a lot of talk about... The goals that we have sometimes for people with autism, especially as they enter um, adolescence and adulthood, I think maybe the parents just want like as normal as possible for them, the experience. But some kids aren't going to want that. And some adults, you know, they talk about Temple Grandin. She never wanted a romantic relationship. And she was very happy to not have one. That was not a goal of hers. So you have to think about what makes that kid happy and maybe that's not really having a lot of friends but right I don't know I don't know it's I know kind of hard yeah all right well that wraps up part one of the book which was called understanding autism and next week we'll start part two which is called living with autism we'll be reading chapter seven for our next episode which is called what it takes to get it which I'm really curious about we haven't read (laughs) it I'm like, what is does, what does I this I want to get it. <laughs> <I know. laughs> get what? <laughs> All right. So we'll see you next week. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.